From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. You could start the clock literally right around the beginning of my lifetime. The, the last 40 years, we've just systematically disinvested and it's catching up to us. Uh, so let's not just do all this work to remain in 13th place in the world on infrastructure. Let's take it to the next level and be proud of it. That's Pete Buttigieg. He's the United States Secretary of Transportation. A lot has changed since Buttigieg last joined me on Stay Tuned in March of 2019. He was still weeks away from launching his presidential bid, and the country was just getting to know Mayor Pete from South Bend, Indiana. Now Buttigieg is Secretary Pete, and he's a key player in the Biden administration's efforts to pass the most significant investment in America's infrastructure since the 1950s. But it all hangs in the balance as the White House struggles to hammer out the details and piece together the votes. Buttigieg joins me today to talk about what's actually in the bill and what it would mean for our trains, roads, bridges, and the livelihoods of millions of Americans. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Barbara, who writes, Hi, Preet. Did you happen to watch the House Select Committee's first hearing on the January 6th insurrection? I found myself getting emotional while watching. Anything stand out to you? Well, Barbara, thanks for your question. You know, I missed it as it was happening and unfolding live, but I managed to catch a large portion of it later. And there are certain clips that I saw over and over and over again. And I don't blame you for getting emotional. And what stood out to me is probably the same kinds of things that stood out to you and to others was in some ways the raw emotion of it. And just to comment on how the proceeding was conducted, I commend the chair, Benny Thompson, and the other members of the panel. If you listen to the show on a regular basis, uh, you know that I'm no stranger to criticizing congressional panels, particularly House panels, where members talk more than they listen, where there's not a lot of light generated just a lot of heat. Here, I think they were very smart and also sensitive to have four in uniform Capitol Hill police officers give the lie to what a lot of Republicans have been saying, that it was a tourist event, that it was Antifa, that it wasn't at the behest of the president of the United States. Here you have four officers describing their actual experiences in gut-wrenching manner and the playing of video Multiple people texted me and said that they wanted to throw up and it made them cry. So for the beginning, for the first hearing, letting the officers tell their stories, officers who have no agenda other than to protect members of Congress, Democrats and Republicans, and to describe some things that we haven't heard before, including Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn, a black Capitol Police officer who said that he was called the N-word again and again and again by these so-called tourists. He said also very poignantly, which sets up a sort of legal issue, eventually an accountability issue 
for that panel. He said, quote, There was an attack carried out on January 6th, and a hitman sent them. I want you to get to the bottom of that. And through that officer, I guess there was no better sort of framing of the issue and the responsibility of that committee. I think the participation of the two selected Republicans, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, was very strong. They were sober. They were moved by the testimony. They were moved by the issue. And I think they continue to show that they put country over party. Meanwhile, I think the big loser in all this, Kevin McCarthy, who thought he was too clever by half, by first objecting to a bipartisan commission where he would have been able to choose half the members and then chose some people to serve on this commission under the guideline, under the rule of the House, in consultation with Nancy Pelosi, proposed two people who I think by any reasonable measure were not qualified to serve because of the positions they've taken, including Jim Jordan. And now he finds himself odd man out. And this committee is going to do its work. They're not going to be derailed by politics or by talk radio and TV talk shows. And I'll tell you from the lawyer's perspective and investigator perspective, one of the most heartening things that I heard, separate and apart from the stories that were so compelling and hard to get out of your head, is that Benny Thompson has said that they're going to go right to the subpoena process. They're not going to waste a lot of time by asking people to come and testify voluntarily and then fight about the scope and everything else. He looks like he's going to skip that step and haul people before the committee to tell them what they know so they can get to the bottom of that. That's all well and good. This question comes in an email from Jennifer, who writes, The VA, the Veterans Affairs Administration, just mandated that all of its employees get vaccinated against COVID. What is the legality of vaccine mandates? Do you personally feel they are warranted? Well, that's a great question. And as you'll see and hear in the interview with Secretary Pete Buttigieg, I asked him that question about Department of Transportation employees. And there have been actions taken by certain divisions of the government, including the VA, like you mentioned, to require vaccines in order to come to work as a condition of employment. Remember, these are not forced inoculations. They aren't mandatory in the sense that people will come to your home and give you the jab, whether you want it or not. And although it, it is coercive, arguably, in a way, it's a condition of employment. Now, what's interesting about this is that there's so much division and there's so much hesitancy, I don't mean vaccine hesitancy, but hesitancy of a different sort, a hesitation to impose these kinds of conditions. It has been imposed in lots of public venues. You've heard me mention probably more times than you would like that I saw Bruce Springsteen on Broadway. As a condition of being able to be an attendee at that concert, every single person, myself included, my son included, had to show proof of vaccine. And we stood in the line and you either showed them a screenshot or you showed them the hard copy of your vaccination card. I think it is very clear that both in the private sector and with respect to government, that you can require vaccination as a condition of employment or attendance somewhere. What I think is very interesting about all this is notwithstanding what I perceive to be clarity in the law, DOJ commissioned an internal opinion from that office that we've talked about in other contexts many times, the Office of Legal Counsel, OLC. That's the office that famously has opined that a sitting president cannot be indicted. We've talked about that ad nauseum multiple times in recent years. But I find it interesting that notwithstanding what I think is fairly clear in the law, that the Justice Department decided that it wanted to have an opinion, and by the way, make the opinion public. Lots of what happens in the OLC remains secret. And that's a point of contention. Senator Ron Wyden and others in Congress are annoyed that so much of the legal reasoning that lies at the heart of decision-making by the government never gets made public. But this, they were sure to make public. And it strikes me 
that it's an effort to give cover and assurance to people both inside and outside of government that having these mandates or these conditions of employment or participation are lawful. And the one thing that makes it a little bit more confusing than you would have in other circumstances, people are always saying, well, it has long been true that you can't send your kids to school without showing inoculation for various things. That's all correct. The difference between these three vaccines that have been approved is that they have been approved under what's called emergency use authorization, which a lot of people are taking that to mean we can't trust it yet. Maybe they won't get final authorization. And so this opinion that goes on for some pages is a bit technical, and it purports to answer the question of, quote, whether Section 564 of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act prohibits entities from requiring the use of a vaccine subject to an emergency use authorization, end quote. So it kind of gets at that question that has people kind of troubled and scratching their head. Do we have to wait till there's final authorization, permanent authorization, or is emergency use enough? I'll spare you the details. But not only is it sort of generally understood throughout the legal profession and throughout government and throughout private industry that such conditions are appropriate and lawful, and in my personal opinion, really needed right now, but the Office of Legal Counsel, that tends to be fairly conservative about these things, has opined about its legality itself. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause. My guest this week is Pete Buttigieg. He currently serves as the Secretary of Transportation, and he's in the middle of helping negotiate the Biden administration's infrastructure bill, a massive piece of legislation that could turn out to be the president's signature achievement. And just a note that we taped our conversation on the morning of Wednesday, July 28th, before the Senate's procedural vote. Secretary Pete Buttigieg, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to be with you. We were discussing right before we started taping, you said people still call you mayor, even though you're now secretary. Yeah, all the time. I think it's just become uh, my first name now, <laughs> is Mayor <laughs> Pete, which uh, I'm happy to answer to. Uh, you know, once, once a mayor, always a mayor. You know what? You were on the podcast two years and change ago. And since then, people know how to say your last name now. What do you make of that? That's true. Yeah. And that's... Uh, it's no small thing with a last name like mine. So uh, They still can't uh, say my last name, but they can say. <laughs> Let me ask you a question that I'm sure you get every time you get interviewed. Now that you are a member of the cabinet, are you very excited to be the designated survivor? 
Oh, geez. Uh, you know, it hasn't come up yet. Uh, and, uh, if you get that, <laughs> but are you looking for? Are you going to? Vo- can you volunteer, or is it by lottery? Uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure all of the mechanics of it. I, I would say that if uh, if you're going that far into the depth chart, we're we're in big trouble. Well, it's part of infrastructure, right? To have the designated survivor. Well, I'll tell you, they they have a plan for for everything. That's one thing I admire about uh, the way things are set up. But uh, uh, you know, I, I love being part of this team. I mean, you know, one thing as a mayor is, uh, by definition, you're, you're you're the only one at a time. And so, one of the the best things that's changed, one of the most welcome adjustments, is just being part of this peer group of of cabinet members. And uh, it really feels like a, like a team of rock stars. So I'm I'm excited to be part of this. How often do you get together as a group ever? We just had our second cabinet meeting in the White House, and it was the first time we actually did it in the cabinet room at the cabinet table, which just has a, a, a weight or a kind of, uh, I don't know, you, you just feel it when, when you're in that room. But in some combination or another, just about every day, uh, some uh, subset of us is together. We have the jobs cabinet that's focused on the, the infrastructure work that's going on, uh, a subset of the cabinet that works on uh, tribal affairs that, that I'm uh, part of and uh, in the different combinations, getting to know each other professionally, but also just as, as uh, teammates and coworkers. And it's a, it's a hell of a group. Now, now, when you have these cabinet meetings and you're all gathered together, is it, is it awkward a little bit to go one by one and, and publicly sing the praises of the leader, Joseph Biden? <laughs> you have to get your preamble right. Oh, glorious and magnificent uh, leader was how. <laughs> do you have to uh, do one that? Of, one of my, you know, one one of my colleagues actually playfully uh, did it because we were talking about the the, the contrast in in the um, uh, the atmosphere where uh, you know we we all witnessed this bizarre spectacle in in the uh, last administration and and here I mean obviously we we uh, love being part of this group. Uh, I think all of us admire the president and the vice president, but we also know that you know he expects us to. Tell them what's going on, the good news, the bad news, what we're up against, uh, what's hard, uh, where we think things need to go. And, and uh, you know, that's that's the kind of team that, that uh, I feel that I was recruited to be part of. So, you know, you, you never really know how things are in, in any other administration but the one you're in. But, but this is one where I think uh, straight talk and, and honesty are valued. And, uh, uh, you know, that's, to me, that, that's part of a functioning team. Yeah, I think it is. Who, who's the cabinet secretary that you deal with the most, given the nature of your job? You know, uh, I deal a lot with uh, Secretary Granholm, fellow Midwesterner. She, uh, as Secretary of Energy, is is uh, so central to the climate issue. And if you think about something like electric vehicles that we work on a lot, uh, you know, EVs are actually only as clean as the energy that goes into them. And we've got to make sure we have a grid uh, that's ready to support the level of electric vehicle adoption that, that we want to drive. So I'm working with her a lot. Uh, with HUD, Secretary Fudge, you know, housing and transportation are not separate things. They're definitely not separate in terms of family budgets, in terms of affordability issues, right? So much depends on being able to live within a, a reasonable commuting distance of work. And and But, uh, you know, they, they are separate on the org chart of the federal government. And so we're working to cut across that with things like supporting transit-oriented development, where, where you think on the front end about how transportation and housing ought to go together. Uh, uh, Michael Regan at the EPA, who, who is uh, someone I've, I really admire and, and really work to be in touch with, especially as we pursue things like emission standards, which uh, not to get into the 
you know, complexity of the, the, the regulatory setup. But basically, EPA has part of it, and we have part of it in terms of uh, uh, how uh, efficient cars need to be. So, you know, any given day, there's an issue that brings me into contact with, with one or more of my cabinet colleagues, and, uh, um, and that's a good thing. I mean, you know, there, there are these silos in the executive branch, and right. we work hard, not just as cabinet members, but really push our teams to work across them. So we are recording this on Wednesday morning, July 28th. There's a lot of negotiating going on. I really appreciate you. You made the time to come on the podcast. Infrastructure week, long time coming. I don't know if this is the week or next week will be the week when there is finally some result. Are we getting a bill? Are we not getting a bill? Why is this so hard? I think we are. As we speak, conversations are happening that are moving us really close to the finish line. And the reason- Are they wondering where you are? <laughs> I, I'll get away with the. Uh, no, like, what do you mean he's talking to pre? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look. Part of it's talking with members of Congress, and, and part of it's talking with the public and, and 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 the press, and getting this message out. Right? We need to make sure that Americans understand what it is we're doing. Infrastructure can sound like such a big, broad, and vague term that I think it's it's very important to spend part of my time. Uh, just getting the message out there about what it would mean if we fixed the number of roads and bridges that we could fix with with this deal we're putting together. What it would mean, uh, not just in terms of the infrastructure itself, but but for our climate. Uh, you know, uh, this may not be called a climate bill, and there's more climate work to be done in in the budget resolution. But actually, the biggest part of our economy in terms of contributing greenhouse gases is transportation. So every decision we make about transit, about rail, about about supporting our ports, all of that is climate policy. Uh, equity, all these things we care about are at stake in, in the deal, deal that's being worked out right now. And I'm hopeful that we can get there. It's something that uh, in different ways and for different reasons is affecting every single part of this country and definitely every single district that every single member of Congress, Republican or Democrat, is going to have to go home to. So explain this to the public who, you know, get news in bits and pieces. Maybe people are watching the Olympics and they hear a lot about infrastructure and they hear this term, two-track. There is a negotiating process going on with respect to a bipartisan infrastructure bill for hundreds of billions of dollars. And then there's a separate thing in the trillions of dollars, which is the budget resolution. Can you explain to, to the ordinary person what the hell it means for something yeah. to be in one of those versus the other <laughs> And what the strategy is, and is it just something that makes sense or not? Here's the way I think of it. The president has an economic vision for this country, and it touches a lot of things, from roads and bridges to uh, how we support people's childcare and, and education and, and, and family leave. All the things that add up to just what it's like to be an American going through life in our economy and what it means to, to build an economy back better than the one uh, that, that, that we had before. So you have this vision. And there's a part of that vision that we can actually do on a bipartisan basis. And that's a big deal because there, there is value in America seeing in today's incredibly divided Washington, there being something, anything that we can do together. And it turns out that a lot of that, that, that part that we can do together revolves around transportation infrastructure. Because again, anyone in the Senate, anyone in the House, what they all have in common is they're all from somewhere. They're all from a place where there's an airport or a set of roads or a bridge or something that needs work in a country that has really failed to keep up with transportation investments for decades. So we've got the, these transportation pieces, broadband internet that we want to have in there, 
issues around lead pipes and, and, and getting uh, clean, safe drinking water to our kids that really does look like it could command a bipartisan uh, vote, a bipartisan majority, even in today's Washington. That's part one. That's when you hear about the two tracks, that's the first track. Then you have the other part. And this is a part that admittedly, uh, we may have to do with only Democratic votes. Now, having said that, I refuse to give up on the idea that that at least some Republicans should vote for this. I mean, I don't know why Republicans can't get on board with the idea of, for example, paid family leave. Most people in most countries, not even wealthy countries, just most countries, period, can expect some level of paid family leave, uh, not in America. Ideas like making childcare affordable for everybody or, or community college free or uh, three and four-year-olds being able to go to school. I think that the that, that Republicans ought to vote for that too, but it might not happen. And so that's on a different track that you can get through with only Democratic votes. Those are the two pieces. Both of them are moving. Can you take us inside the negotiations? Who's playing ball? Who's not? Yeah, so what you have is a, a group, sometimes it's, it's called a, a gang of, uh, of, of 10 or 11, 20 at different moments. Yeah, I don't know why they always call it, it a but, gang. That has uh, pejorative. Yeah, I mean, hopefully this is a, a better <laughs> better sense of uh, what a gang of people can do. But, the, you know, the point is you have a, a room of some Democratic and Republican senators who uh, believe in pulling this together and believe they can deliver votes from the broader caucus, right? So, um you have uh, uh, you have a lot of overlapping groups too. There are committees that work on uh, things like transportation year in year out. Then you have the, these these groups that form. They're unofficial. They're informal. They don't have kind of a uh, a title other than you know when we call them a gang of five or, or ten or whatever. But uh, they come together and, and hammer out something, and then uh, go back and, and see if they can uh, get the votes among their colleagues to make it happen. Meanwhile, the White House is is playing a convening role. And remember, all of this was launched by the president laying out his vision earlier this year, which we call the American Jobs Plan, which is the, the framework that holds all of this together. And you know, a lot of analysis has been done on the president's American Jobs Plan. And the, the analysis tells us it's going to create millions of good-paying jobs in this country, most of them, importantly, don't require a college degree. So it's, it's a, a, a as we like to say, a blue-collar blueprint for uh, for the future of the economy. And, and uh, a great deal of that original vision that was in the American Jobs Plan is in this bipartisan infrastructure framework that we are hoping will, uh, even as, as you and I sit here, be uh, uh, soon be finalized and ready to be moved onto the floor. Well, that would be great. So let's talk about some of those things that you expect to be in the bipartisan final bill. I presume if there's hundreds of billions of dollars that's going into this, among other things, the Acela train from Amtrak that I take from time to time will be two times faster before long. <laughs> True or false? Uh, doesn't work quite that way, although Why no, not? One would like that, no one would like that more we than We looked it up. Or, My team looked it up. The Acela train reaches a maximum speed of 82 miles per hour. The Japanese bullet train, 177 miles per hour. So we're not putting any dollars into making our trains faster. No, we are. It's just not going to come overnight, and it's not going to be as uh, as uh, dramatic as, as that. But uh, no, it's it's unquestionably going to give us a stronger train network on the Northeast Corridor. And importantly, this is not just about the Northeast Corridor. So, uh, you know, across the country, there are a lot of communities, including the Midwest, where I come from, the South, places like Texas, uh, a lot of places that would benefit from more frequent, more reliable train service and, and a movement toward true high-speed rail. I mean, it's, And those routes are just out. not profitable, so they need government subsidy. Is that fair? 
Yeah, and they're not supposed to be, right? I mean, sometimes people throw on this idea that, that uh, you know, they're, they're anti-trains because trains don't make a profit. Well, the whole reason we have a federal policy around them is, is that uh, they're not there to make a profit. They're there to uh, make sure the economy as a whole is stronger. Uh, I mean, you could say the same thing about driving, right? Uh, uh, you know, roads typically, uh, with a few exceptions in terms of certain kind of privately managed toll roads, roads generally don't make a profit. You collect taxes and then you spend them to uh, uh, create these these roadways that, that make an economy possible, uh, similar with rail. So that's why we need to make choices about, uh, as a country, about supporting them to unlock the greater economic value and potential that they create for the economy as a whole. That's that's why we do anything, right? If something could be efficiently, fairly, and profitably delivered by a business, you wouldn't need government decisions. You wouldn't need Congress. You wouldn't need a big bill to make it happen. Uh, that's why, uh, you know, in so many other areas of the economy, um, all, all we need to do is kind of set some basic safety regulatory boundaries and, and let the market do its thing. With infrastructure, with big critical infrastructure, it's it's not that simple. You can't make a profit uh, uh, for any one player uh, unless you have a system that a country uh, has decided to do. Another way to put it is that, you know, it is countries, not companies, that build national uh, networks and then individual companies operate on them or through them and create jobs. And that's how the public private handshake is supposed to work. Right. So you mentioned countries and companies, but there's another unit of geography. There are regions and you mentioned everyone's from somewhere. And I wonder if it's the case that the infrastructure needs in America for rural communities, does that provide a point of divergence with respect to the infrastructure needs of, of urban communities or does it provide an opportunity of overlap? Because the broadband needs and the bridging and the bridge needs and the rail needs, they're different. Does that cause discord or does that cause compromise? Well, if we get the balance right, then it's a win for everybody. And I do think we need to have a smarter public conversation about this. Uh, for example, making sure that there is affordable and fast internet access for everybody. You got one set of problems in cities where the biggest issues usually have to do with affordability. A different set of problems in a lot of rural areas where the issue has to do with whether there's any connection at all. So by saying that we're going to make sure that Americans writ large have fast, affordable internet wherever you are, we're saying that you know, rural or urban, we're going to put the resources into making that happen. And you know, a lot of the things that I think have publicly been thought of as, as a big city thing might actually be as beneficial or more beneficial in rural areas, and I'll give you an example, which is electric vehicles. You know, I think early adopters of electric vehicles tended to be people who lived in cities. And so a lot of rural Americans are saying, you know, this does nothing for me. But if you look right now at, for example, the kind of electric pickup trucks that Detroit is making with American workers on American soil, no one's going to benefit from this more than people who live in spread out rural areas. Think about it. I mean, first of all, if you live in rural America, you probably drive more any given day, which means you burn more gas, which means you're going to save more money if you have an electric vehicle and you don't have to fuel up. Also, some of the challenges we face in cities that are going to be very important for electric vehicles, like, uh, you know, if you live in a large apartment building, how can we make sure that everybody there has the ability to charge up? Uh, those are actually easier in more spread out areas where uh, people are likelier to live in standalone houses and, you know, your, your charging infrastructure, so to speak, is as simple as a regular plug in the wall of your garage. So, you know, some of these things that, that come into our consciousness as 
rural, uh, you know, more urban or more rural might actually be the reverse over time or if you zoom out and think about the big picture. You just got to get people to think about that. My conversation with Pete Buttigieg continues after this. I think there's another issue with respect to infrastructure that causes some people's eyes to glaze over. And I think, you know, there's a reason for that. And I think about my own home. And I was saying to, to some of my team in preparing for this interview that, you know, there was once a time where we had to spend some money to get something that we wanted. And it's, of course, when you live in the suburbs, a barbecue grill. And it was very exciting. And I didn't mind pay- paying that money because that's part of infrastructure in a domestic uh, setting <laughs> to have a barbecue grill and grills. I like this. I'm not sure where you're going with this, but I like this idea. Barbecue Bear grills as infrastructure. Okay. <laughs> for a moment. Uh, and then sometime later, we had we have an old boiler in the basement that reached the end of its life and we had to replace it. And it was thousands of dollars. And I understood that was an important expense and protected my family and protected our home. But I really didn't like spending that money. There was no euphoria in getting the new boiler, which is, of course, you know, more traditional infrastructure in the domestic setting. And it occurred to me if the boiler companies had a sale and said, you know, and let me know if you think this is stupid or not. This summer, you get a new boiler with throwing a barbecue grill. I would have been running to get the new boiler. And as a metaphor for the infrastructure bill as a whole, it's not exciting when you have invisible spending. In other words, shoring up a bridge shoring up a building. That's very, very important and responsible. People understand that, but they want some new exciting thing. You've mentioned a couple. What are other things like that that are in this bill that people will see that are not invisible that they can get excited about? Yeah, you're right. This is this is the paradox of, of good infrastructure investment, which is, uh, you know, when infrastructure works really well, a lot of times you're not noticing it, right? You, you don't say, oh, you know, great day today. The bridge didn't fall down. It's just not supposed to. And to make sure it does, I do that. You know, I do that. Well, good. I'm a pessimist. I'm glad you're that intentional about it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the whole idea. I used to talk about this a lot as a mayor in terms of the, the 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 importance of things like water and wastewater infrastructure. Is that if you even have to think about it, that means you're a little bit less free to think about the other things that you should be able to concentrate on in life, right? So families, for example, that can't absolutely take for granted that they're going to get a glass of clean, safe drinking water out of the tap are less free to worry about things like whatever brings meaning in their life, school or work or family or faith, because they're, they're worried about something as basic as whether you have access to clean, clean, safe drinking water. So a lot of infrastructure spending, it's, it's about just taking that off the table, making sure that the road just works, the pipes just work, the bridge just is there. Now, having said that, there are some things that are newer and that are exciting and that are part of this. Uh, you know, I think electric vehicles is a great example of that. I think the kinds of infrastructure we can build in terms of taking our airports to the next level. You know, there are some listings of the top 25 airports in the world where not one of them is in the United States. And wait a minute, wait a minute. LaGuardia is not in the top 25? I know, I know that shockingly uh, <laughs> has not shown up much. And and by the way, this is not just uh, of concern for the you know, comparatively well-off people who use airports a lot as travelers, but also the, the many people whose jobs are supported by an airport in their community. And so, you know, the, the other thing I think that, that, that we get very excited about in this administration is the jobs that are going to be created. Good paying, again, largely blue collar, uh, but really across the spectrum. I mean, 
everything from you know PhD engineers to uh, uh, union electricians uh, to uh, painters and insulators, plumbers and pipe fitters, you name it. I mean, there's so many opportunities in this round of work that uh, we've frankly needed to do all along. I mean, you could start the clock literally right around the beginning of my lifetime. I mean, the, the, the last 40 years, we've just systematically disinvested and it's catching up to us. Uh, so let's not just do all this work to remain in 13th place in the world on infrastructure. Let's take it to the next level and be proud of it. I'm, I'm so confused about this. Everything you say makes a lot of sense. There's Republican support. We're talking bipartisan in an age of utter polarization. I want to get to some of that before I let you go also. How come this wasn't possible under the prior administration? Politics. Politics. But but isn't it good politics? But I don't get, isn't it good politics to do something like this? Well, it should be. And in a moment like this, I think it is. But we have to remember that that we've come through a very long season in this country of uh, this idea that you could just cut, cut, and cut and get away with it. Uh, and, you know, for a while there was even a, a, a belief since disproven that, that, that if you cut, uh, you know, revenue enough, you cut taxes enough, it would somehow come back to the Treasury um, in, in terms of the growth it would create. And, of course, that, that didn't happen, but people really thought it would. And it turns out that, that when you slash taxes on corporations and the wealthy, for example, um, that, that's not <laughs> – there's no such thing as a, as a uh, tax cut that is not also – uh, either a, 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 an impact on the deficit and or a service cut. And so that mentality, I think, really followed us uh, to the extreme where it became very difficult for the federal government to do things that, uh, you know, even local communities uh, step up and, and, and do, right? I mean, in, in, in a local environment, if, if you've got to pull together the revenue to, to fix your streets or, or enhance transit or do some of these things. Voters have generally been willing to do that as long as it's not unreasonably expensive or it's not an unfair tax burden. Um, that's been that's been tougher federally. You add to that the, the kind of crass political considerations. Does one team want to give the other team a win by working with them? And, and all of these things, I think, conspired over the last 10, even 20 years to make it very hard to get something done. But here's a moment where I believe good policy and good politics really are aligning, uh, where most Americans are impatient to get something done, where anyone who's part of this will, I, I'd like to think, be rewarded by, by the public for having delivered. Uh, and by the way, that, that's even true on the revenue side. I don't know exactly where we're going to come out in terms of uh, uh, the ways that, that this is being paid for. But what I will say is when the president laid out his vision, which this is fully paid for, without raising a penny in taxes on anybody making less than 400,000 bucks. Uh, when, we, when we explained to the American people how we were proposing to do it, closing loopholes, that kind of thing, uh, support for the bill actually went up even higher. So I, I think, you know, America is there. But, you know, one thing we learned, we saw this in the rescue plan, is just because something is popular, even wildly popular, uh, across uh, the country with Americans in both parties, that doesn't mean it's automatically got support on Capitol Hill. You actually have to work through all of the complexities of the politics and the policy. And that's exactly what this bipartisan group is doing. And I think, I hope, uh, very close to being able to have something to show for it. Where's the business community on this? I I saw that there are letters that are being signed by lots of corporate executives. Are there some folks in some industries who are giving you a problem? Or is there overall consensus? And is that helping? 
One of my favorite things about this moment is that it's creating a lot of strange bedfellows. And so you're seeing businesses that are not generally on board with Democratic president's initiatives. Um, you're seeing business and labor groups that are not generally on board with each other, uh, literally at the table together with, with the president, saying, we want to do this. We're, we're for this. How can we uh, keep getting the word out? So I've been thrilled by businesses that have done the math and see the need for more infrastructure, labor groups that are looking at the, the jobs, the good-paying union jobs that are going to be created, uh, and, and a lot of uh, other people who are just, frankly, rarely on the same side of anything brought together around this opportunity. I'm getting the sense, given the ebullience with which you're talking about all this, that you, you enjoy your portfolio. You like it. I love it. I mean, uh, you know, I get to be the secretary of uh, trains, planes, and automobiles and, and uh, a whole lot of other things. <laughs> I was going to make a joke about that movie, but I forgot. <laughs> you got to a, a wonderful movie. But a lot of other stuff too, maritime, commercial space travel, pipeline safety. We're, we're in the middle of it. But what's really what really makes this a compelling place to be is that so many other things are at stake in the seemingly unglamorous work around transportation, right? As I mentioned earlier, uh, if you believe that climate is one of the existential challenges facing humanity at our, in our time, as I do, one of the biggest areas to work on climate is in transportation. If you uh, believe that, that the generations that are now in power uh, and in positions of responsibility need to tackle the issue of racial and economic justice in this country. Uh, it turns out one of the biggest areas to work on equity, both in terms of who gets services and in terms of who gets jobs, is transportation. Uh, uh, the, the, the safety issues, the economic issues, the technology issues. It is it is an incredibly dynamic, compelling, exciting area to work in. And and uh, and, I, and I'm thrilled that the president has has put a big priority on, on making transportation infrastructure happen. So I'm glad you like your portfolio. My next question is, do you think that Vice President Kamala Harris would like to trade portfolios with you? I mean, look, she, she's taken on some really, <laughs> really demanding uh, responsibilities and, uh, and, and I think doing it admirably. And, uh, you know, again, when I look across the cabinet table and I see her uh, and I see so many colleagues who are not only so capable and talented and effective, but but also whose presence at that cabinet table is a historic fact in itself. It's it's one of the things that, that really just puts winds in my sails to, to do this work. You know, turns out it's basically impossible to go more than a paragraph without using some <laughs> kind of transportation metaphor. Once you start noticing it. You, use, you know what? You know what? You, you can use it with that attribute. Use the barbecue grill thing. Everybody <laughs> wants good. a Weber. You know, something just popped into my head when you were talking for years, and I don't know if this is within the portfolio or the DOT takes positions on this, but for years we've been hearing about the imminent prospect of driverless cars and their various prototypes. And then you hear about accidents. And I've always wondered from my legal background what the liability issues would be. Is that anywhere on your radar? Is that going to be a real thing or is that going to be too difficult for people to swallow? No, I think that's going to be a big part of uh... Uh, the story of transportation in the 2020s. I mean, look, a lot of these technologies are here. They're being piloted on streets. I, saw, I was in Arizona recently, and, and uh, it wasn't even a site visit. I just saw on the road some, some of these cars. And if you think about the implications in terms of everything from safety to congestion to labor uh, to liability, there, there's a lot going on here. Let, let me make a couple of points. First of all, safety. Now, we've got to make sure that these things are safe. 
the safety, the potential safety benefit of these, assuming that, that we have that confidence, is enormous. Look, human drivers do not have a very good track record. As a matter of fact, uh, in, in terms of roadway and pedestrian deaths, it has been moving in the wrong direction over the course of the last right. year. But human we drivers should. believe they have control, which psychologically makes a big difference. And, and isn't the tolerance for human driving error higher than the tolerance for computer error? Well, that's one of the things we got to work through, right? And and you have to uh, have the the computer error be so extremely unlikely that that uh, people would see a benefit. But you know, the other issue is that, frankly, our policies have not kept up with our technologies. Here's one way to think about it: if, if you think about the division of labor between what we do in the federal government, where we have the five star safety ratings and the crash tests and, and and recalls and all of those things. And then you think about what states do, right? The Bureau of Motor Vehicles, getting your driver's license. Basically, the division of labor, to simplify just a bit, is federally, we regulate the cars. And at the state level, the state regulates the drivers. Now, what are you supposed to do when the car is the driver? Who's in charge of that? We're not really set up for that. I mean, right now, you know, my department can tell you exactly where you need to put a side view mirror on a car that doesn't have a human driver. So we need to work through this at a policy level. There's going to need to be legislation. Uh, it's not just a technology problem. It's, it's uh, really a societal issue of how we're going to wrap our arms around this when for the last hundred years, we've been used to a very different model of how vehicles get around. So I want to talk about COVID for a second. We haven't kicked this pandemic in, in part because of vaccine hesitancy. As the Secretary of Transportation, is it within your power to require employees of that department to get vaccinated before they can show up for work? So that's a, a broader call that, that happens in, in the context of the federal administration as a whole. But, you know, these are the kinds of questions that are being talked about right now. Uh, you know, we, we need to make sure that our workforce is safe. We're also thinking a lot about what the future of work looks like. We have 55,000 employees in this department, and some of them are for example, air traffic controllers who never had the option to work from home. Others, I mean, I'll tell you, I'm in a, I'm in a big building. As we speak right now, I'm, I'm sitting in our uh, big headquarters in, in Navy Yard. It's a beautiful building meant to hold thousands of employees. And occasionally I've walked among the cubicles on this floor, a couple floors down, and it's eerie. I mean, you'll see a you know bag of chips on the desk or a sweater draped over a a chair that, that was probably left there a year and a half ago. And the person, the employee, you know, they're still here. They're doing, they're, they're doing great work for the department, but they haven't been to their desk in a year and a half. I don't think any of us think we're going back to the 2019 way of working exactly. But but do you come out on the side on, on the issue? I know it's being discussed and maybe there'll be some announcements soon. Do you think the time has come for the federal government in more than one agency? I think the VA is doing it to require vaccinations. I mean, again, I'm, I'm not going to get at it. <laughs> it's very literally, you know, I'm not going to get uh, ahead of the White House on this, but but we do need to talk about how we keep our employees and our public safe. I mean, look, vaccination is very clearly the ticket to normalcy, whether you're talking about, you know, being able to freely access a workplace or whether we're talking about uh, what I think a lot of us are impatient to do, which is get on an airplane without, without a mask uh, or... Uh, fully safely reopen international travel or any of the things that represent really putting this pandemic behind us. It's very clear that the way to get there is to have a level of vaccination that we just haven't yet achieved. Let me ask the question a slightly different way. 
you have gained some notoriety or fame or at least recognition insofar as you go on Fox News and talk to people, not just the hosts, but the viewers who may not be aligned with some of your thoughts about things. And so there's a lot of discussion about how the information, the diet of information that people who watch that network and some other networks are are being persuaded that the vaccine is not safe. If, I don't know if you've done this, maybe you have, but I doubt it given how busy you are on transportation issues. If you were to go to an audience that was vaccine hesitant, what, what are the arguments you make to them as to why they should change their mind? Yeah, no, I, I, I think about this and work on this a lot when I'm not uh, out there talking about uh, infrastructure. I'm, I'm often out there trying to promote uh, vaccination. And, and, you know, again, the, the, the success we've had, the progress we've had so far in the last few months as a country is because of the level of vaccination that's happened. Um, by the way, somebody who, who speaks, I think, very eloquently and very wisely about this is our, our Surgeon General, uh, Vivek Murthy, who, who yeah. has a way of recognizing where people are and, and appreciating that, that uh, you know, depending on what information you're exposed to and, and what environment you're yeah. in. I mean, you're, you're, you agree that, people have that questions. even though, you know, people get very upset uh, on Twitter, that berating people for not taking the vaccine is not effective. Right. I mean, think what the question you got to ask is what effect are you hoping to have on somebody? Right. Are you hoping to just feel better yourself that you will let somebody have it <laughs> that you think doesn't see the light? Or are you actually hoping to guide them toward making a different decision? So one way to get at that is to say, OK, it sounds like you have questions or you have you have doubts. Let's help you get good information. And if uh, vaccines.gov, which is full of good information, isn't a place that you trust, then maybe talk to someone you do trust who I would also trust to give you good information, like your doctor. Another way of looking at it is just to, to take, you know, to, to use a little more conservative language to talk about personal responsibility. You know, I, I know, look, people I care about, people in our extended family uh, have hesitated. Some of them have, have a view that, that God is, is going to take care of them. And, uh, and I think uh, an important way to talk about this for them is, you know, this, this vaccine could be viewed as the answer to a lot of prayers. And, uh, you know, remember not to make God do the work for you. If there's a step you can take and a step you can take responsibility for that helps keep yourself and people you love safe. There's an anniversary that's sneaking up on us. And I haven't given a lot of thought, but I realize that six weeks from now is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. You're a public servant. You're a veteran. How do you think about that anniversary and how do you think America should commemorate it? Well, I think uh, uh, you're right. It's coming up on us and it's a very important moment. And I know maybe 20 doesn't seem like as much of a landmark year as certain other years that we keep track of. But the reason I think the 20th anniversary is important is that it marks a threshold where people are now becoming adults who were not alive when this happened. Um, So for my generation, of course, uh, you know, like anyone, I like to think of myself as as, as the new generation, Um, but I'm not. And it's very different from my generation that was shaped by this. I was in college. I, mean, I remember my roommate waking me up uh, registration day, sophomore year, saying, you've got to look at what's going on on TV. Uh, and, you know, shaped the trajectory of my life in, and, and my generation's life in so many ways. Even those who didn't wind up serving in the military as I did. Uh, it's just hard to even say how different our lives would be uh, if this hadn't happened or how different our politics would be. 
if this hadn't happened. And of course, now I think about it in another way, which is from a transportation perspective. I mean, this was uh, a terrorist attack that used another one of those modes of transportation that we're supposed to be able to count on being safe and, and, and turned our aircraft, our commercial passenger aircraft into weapons to attack our own cities. It, it shook this nation and shaped this nation in ways that I think we still haven't fully come to terms with. And part of what I'm reflecting on is, is how we as a department and, and uh, given our involvement with, with the aviation sector can mark what it meant, how we responded, uh, what, what came out of it, and, uh, and what we might learn from that as we're facing right now uh, of course, certain threats never go away, but other radically different ones from 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 the, uh, the climate threat to the COVID threat. Um, you know how we put that in context. I know you have to go. You have negotiations to engage in. Final question: Do you still want to be president of the United States? I want to be the best Secretary of Transportation that I can be, and that's going to keep me. I busy. knew that was going to be your answer. How about how about when your public <laughs> service is done? How about host of Jeopardy? Oh, uh, I don't think you'd I'm be pretty good. Quite, I think. You think I don't mean to flatter you, but. I think so. They need a permanent host. I'll tell you, that's that's a position of great national and civic responsibility. I don't know if I'd uh, I don't know if I'd take that on or not. Jeopardy is infrastructure. Yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Secretary Buttigieg, it's great to hear from you. Thank you again for everything you're doing, and I wish you luck in the negotiations. Likewise, thanks a lot. It's great being with you. If you're interested in the history of American infrastructure, please check out this week's episode of our new history podcast, Now and Then, wherever you listen. So I want to end the show this week talking about the coronavirus. There have been a lot of improvements, a lot of advancements, lots of people have gotten vaccinated. As I'm recording this on Wednesday morning, there is news swirling about a return to mask mandates. The CDC has put out new guidance yet again. There's a discussion at the highest levels of government of imposing mandatory vaccines if people want to work and they're in the federal workforce. And there's a boiling over frustration at the people who are refusing to get vaccinations. And in the midst of all this debate and all this turmoil, there was a story I saw last week, and you may have seen it too, that basically stopped me in my tracks. It's by Dennis Pillion, and it was in alabama.com. And it's just an honest and heart-wrenching account from someone who was a doctor on the front lines of the battle against COVID. But it's also the account of a kind human being, someone who is extraordinarily empathetic. And if you haven't heard the story and you haven't heard her words, I thought I would share them with you. The doctor is Brittany Cobia, who was on staff at the Grandview Medical Center in Birmingham, Alabama, a place where there's a lot of increase in the coronavirus. And she had this to say in an emotional Facebook post, and also in an interview with the media outlet. She says, quote, I'm admitting young, healthy people to the hospital with very serious COVID infections. And then she says this, one of the last things they do before they're intubated is beg me for the vaccine. I hold their hand and I tell them I'm sorry, but it's too late. Dr. Cobia compares this experience to the earlier days. She says, quote, back in 2020 and early 2021, when the vaccine wasn't available, it was just tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. You know, so many people that did all the right things and yet still came in and were critically ill and died. 
end quote. Of course, now there's a way to save yourself. There is a vaccine that's safe and effective. And so now Dr. Cobia has a ritual. She said this on Facebook, quote, A few days later, when I call time of death, I hug their family members, and I tell them the best way to honor their loved one is to get vaccinated and encourage everyone they know to do the same. And Dr. Cobia describes the anguish of the families, the confusion and the hurt, and sometimes the epiphanies. About the family, she says, quote, they cry, and they tell me they didn't know. They thought it was a hoax. They thought it was political. They thought because they had a certain blood type or a certain skin color, they wouldn't get as sick. They thought it was just the flu, but they were wrong. And they wish they could go back, but they can't. So they thank me, and they go get the vaccine. And I go back to my office, write their death note, and say a small prayer that this loss will save more lives. End quote. There are lots of people who are angry, who feel no sympathy, no empathy for those who refuse the vaccine. But that's not how Dr. Cobia sees it. Quote, you kind of go into it thinking, okay, I'm not going to feel bad for this person because they make their own choice. But then you actually see them. You see them face to face. And it really changes your whole perspective because they're still just a person that thinks they made the best decision that they could with the information that they have and all the misinformation that's out there. And now all you really see is their fear and their regret. And even though I may walk into the room thinking, okay, this is your fault, you did this to yourself, when I leave the room, I just see a person that's really suffering and that is so regretful for the choice that they made. Dr. Cobia explains the pragmatism of her approach. Her goal is not to accuse or alienate. She's a doctor. Her goal is to get more shots and more arms. And she says this, quote, I try to be very non-judgmental when I'm getting a new COVID patient that's unvaccinated, but I really just started asking them, why haven't you gotten the vaccine? And I'll just ask it, point blank, in the least judgmental way possible. And most of them, they're very honest. They give me answers. I talked to this person. I saw this thing on Facebook. I got this email. I saw this on the news. You know, these are all the reasons that I didn't get vaccinated. And then Dr. Cobia goes on and says, and the one question that I always ask them is, did you make an appointment with your primary care doctor and ask them for their opinion on whether or not you should receive the vaccine? And so far, nobody has answered yes to that question. I know it's difficult for a lot of folks who've gotten vaccinated and those who are not vaccinated are making it difficult for everyone else. You'll remember earlier in the show, I talked with Pete Buttigieg about the ways to persuade people to get the vaccine. And I think some of the heartbreaking lessons taught by Dr. Cobia would be good for us to remember. Be well and be safe. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Secretary Pete Buttigieg. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email 
to staytunedatcafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. The CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.